Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 7, The Maya Part 2. Last episode, we discussed the origins of the Maya. We examined how small villages turned into large city-states. We also talked a bit about Mesoamerican religion, how the religions of the different cultures were related to each other, and how they shared gods and practices. Today I want to begin by picking up where we left off, I want to talk about the Mayan religion specifically, and then move on to a discussion of Mayan society. As always, feel free to leave any comments, suggestions or corrections on the Facebook page, or to email me at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. Now, as we've discussed, the Mayan religion was closely related to those of their Mesoamerican neighbours, but what did it specifically look like? What were its unique features? Well. The Mayans believed that there were three spiritual realms. First was Earth, the physical world. Second was Heaven. And third was the underworld. This sounds a lot like the Christian tradition. However, there are some differences. Heaven and Hell had nothing to do with sin or virtue. Only those who died a violent death would go straight to Heaven. The underworld was not a fiery place of eternal torture either. It was a place of obstacles. The souls of the deceased had to navigate these obstacles in order to make it up to heaven. Heaven had many different levels. The nature of your death would determine in which level you ended up. Each one was ruled by a deity. Those drowned, for example, would end up in the level ruled by the god of water. These deities would also affect things on earth. That same god of water was in charge of making sure that the rains came. Rituals such as sacrifice were designed to strengthen these gods and to make sure they had enough energy to complete their tasks. Natural events such as floods or droughts were thought to have been caused when the god was either displeased or had not been sufficiently strengthened by rituals. The Maya saw this as the primary feature of their relationship with the gods. Their job was to serve them and to help the gods with the running of the natural world. We are not sure exactly how many gods the Maya had, this is partly due to the multifaceted nature of them. Gods often had more than one role, and sometimes more than one appearance. This makes it difficult to tell which gods were which. A god may sometimes be shown as a wise old man, while at other times as a young female child. Interestingly, although the Mayans respected and feared their gods, as do most cultures, thanks to their belief that they strengthened the gods through their rituals, they sometimes depicted themselves as parents to the gods. There are carvings showing gods as babies, feeding from the breasts of the royal family. Now I think that's fascinating. We are so used to gods being these all-powerful beings, ones that have created us, 
and ones which could kill us if we misbehaved. God is often known as the Father in the Christian tradition, and we are his children. I'm sure the Maya were still afraid of their gods. They could cause droughts, floods or earthquakes, which could cause loss of life. However, this turning upside down of the relationship between God and man, I've never seen it anywhere else. I dare say there may be some other culture somewhere that has a similar idea, but I've never heard of it before. As I mentioned, the Maya did conduct sacrifices to strengthen their gods. Sometimes, the victims were human, but this was nowhere near as common as it was for the Aztecs. It largely only took place during extremely important events, such as declarations of war or coronations. Ritual bloodletting, however, was much more common. Sometimes the priests would cut themselves and deliberately lose so much blood that they began hallucinating. They believed that their hallucinations were the gods and that they were communicating with them. Alongside this method, they also used natural hallucinogens, such as mushrooms. Mayan gods varied from city to city and from time to time. Different gods were popular in different times and places. Some were constantly popular, however. One example is Itzamnach, the highest and oldest of the gods. The most powerful god was Kinich Acho, the god of the sun and war. I want to apologise here for my pronunciation. If you see the names of these gods written down, you'll see why it might be pretty difficult for me to pronounce their names. Hopefully what I'm saying sounds something close to how it's supposed to be said. The Mayans had gods for all the usual important things. Sun, moon, war, rain. But one unique and very important one was Yum Kach, the god of corn. Corn was and is the staple food of Mesoamerica. Even today, throughout the region... It forms the basis of most people's diets, normally in the form of a tortilla. This god was very important to the Maya, and this shows just how much they relied on corn for their survival. There is a certain playfulness to Mayan culture which still exists today. They like nothing more than having a joke with each other. Wit and cleverness are often valued over strength. This can sometimes find expression in their myths and deities. One of the Mayan death gods, for example, is known as Kisin, which translates as the farter. Images of him sometimes show swirling noxious gases coming from his backside, and people recoiling in horror. They were probably relating the bad smell of farts to the smell of something dead decaying. It's also possible, however, that they were trying to find humour in something scary such as death. One of the most famous aspects of the Maya is their calendar and their obsession with astronomy. You may remember that back in 2012, there was a mild hysteria around the idea that the Mayan calendar was coming to an end and that the world may be about to finish. Now, of course, this never happened, but many historians argue that the Maya themselves did not see this as the end. The calendar is cyclical. After a certain number of years, the cycle comes to an end and a new cycle begins. For the Maya, this is actually a cause for celebration. All those people panicking about the cycle coming to an end completely overlooked the fact that it was also the beginning of a new one. The calendar is extremely complex. I will not even try to explain how it works here. All you need to know is that it was extremely sophisticated and the mark of a complex and advanced culture. A lot of what we know about the Maya 
comes from the writings that they themselves left behind. As the golden age of the Maya was long past by the time the Spanish arrived, we do not have any European accounts of the civilization in its heyday. Instead, we have to rely on the stele. While there are a few codices, the Maya left nowhere near as many of these behind as the Aztecs did. Instead, they carved writing and pictures onto stone slabs which were dotted around their cities. We do not know the exact purpose of the stele. Often they seem to detail the lives and achievements of the kings. It's possible they were some kind of propaganda tool to keep the masses in line. They may have also had some kind of religious significance. They were sometimes wrapped in cloth as some kind of ritual. The stele were clearly very important. When a city was captured, one of the first things that was done was to destroy them all. During the classical period, the Maya created hundreds of them. 166 have been found in the city of Calakmul alone. We know from the stele that the Mayans had a complex hieroglyphic writing system. It consisted of pictograms that showed physical objects. A snake, for example, would be represented by a carving of a snake. This alone, however, would have been quite a restrictive form of writing. They also developed a set of symbols which represented abstract concepts, such as beauty or air. Finally, they had symbols known as syllabograms. These represented sounds made in spoken language, and each contained one vowel and one consonant. In total, hundreds of symbols have been identified. This would have meant the Mayan written language would have been extremely difficult to learn. It also took us a long time to be able to read their writing. Now that we can, however, our knowledge of the Maya has increased immeasurably. Mayan society was organised according to a strict class structure. Everyone was born into a social role, and it was unlikely that they would ever change their position. At the top was the king. He ruled his city-state, and possibly other neighbouring cities if he'd managed to conquer them. Below him were the nobles. The marker of nobility was ownership of land. They would not have spent much time looking after it, however. Instead, their job was to run the bureaucracy and administration. Nobles often became architects, diplomats or engineers. Mayan nobles would identify themselves through their style of dress. They would wear fine clothes, often incorporating colourful feathers, as well as jade jewellery. They would also demonstrate their status by modifying their bodies. Tattoos were common. Rather than inking below the skin as we do today, however, they would make cuts to it. These would then be filled with ink and this would create a raised pattern of coloured scars. Patterns were also sometimes carved into teeth, a particularly unpleasant-sounding form of body modification. Perhaps the strangest thing they did, however, was wrap the heads of their babies. Babies' skulls are soft and malleable. By wrapping bandages tightly around them, they could influence the shape of the head as the baby grew. Due to this process, the Mayan nobility would have had sloping, almost cone-shaped heads, rather than the naturally round ones that most people have. They would have looked incredibly strange. The nobles also had long hair, and piercings were popular. As well as the cone-head thing, the Mayans also considered being cross-eyed as a good thing. It was seen as a mark of beauty. Mayan noble parents would attach resin to their babies' noses, they hoped that the baby would try to focus on it 
and by doing so this would eventually turn them cross-eyed. Now I find all this equally hilarious and fascinating. One thing I've learned through studying anthropology is that things we consider to be desirable, beautiful or status symbols only make sense within the culture that they're found. Equally, things that could be considered undesirable, ugly, silly or even ridiculous, they all come from our cultural expectations. As an Englishman, the idea of class and social status is very familiar to me. I can instantly recognise an upper-class British person by the way they speak, dress and act. I wouldn't really think twice about someone wearing a tweed jacket or one of those red coats they wear when they go fox hunting. In the same way, for the Maya, the cross-eyed, cone-headed people walking around their city would not have seemed strange, they would have just seemed rich. If you tried to step back and view your own culture from outside, you might discover that some of our own society's habits are equally strange. The British nobility of a few hundred years ago, for example, used to wear ruffs, which were large, ornate, detachable collars. Now, they look like one of the most inconvenient, impractical and useless pieces of clothing that could be designed. If you were a noble back then, however, you wouldn't dare be seen without one. Similarly, there are a myriad of rules governing upper-class behaviour. While it's true these may have been relaxed in recent decades, doing things such as using the wrong cutlery for the wrong course at dinner will be frowned upon. It is also a no-no to speak in the wrong way, with the wrong accent and use the wrong words. Now while all these things may sometimes be the object of ridicule amongst the lower classes, we don't really question them. Step back, however, and really think about them. They're no less silly than a Mayan conehead. They serve no practical purpose, and only exist as a way to mark yourself out as special. This is, I believe, a universal human desire, and each society devises its own ways of marking social status. Funnily enough, the tattoos and piercings that the noble Mayans used to identify themselves are considered vulgar by our own nobility. In different societies, the same attribute can be used to mark either high or low social status. As well as the landowning nobles, there also appears to have been a distinct priestly class within Mayan society. These people were in charge of running the temples, organising religious rituals and mediating with the gods. By the time the Spanish arrived, the Mayans were long past their heyday. We know that the priests were a powerful class at this time. We can't say for sure, however, if this was a new development or if during the classical period these priests had this strong status. Either way, they would have lived a privileged existence, much better than that of the ordinary commoner. It was these common people who made up the bulk of the Mayan population. If you were not the king, a priest, or one of the lucky few landowners, you were probably a commoner. If you were a commoner, you were probably a farmer. Your day-to-day existence would most likely have consisted of toiling on the land, producing food. It would most likely have been a hard and unglamorous life. Despite being in the majority, these people were not well represented in Mayan writing and art, so we don't know too much about their lives. While a few would have lived in the cities, most would have lived in villages. Their houses were made of wood and mud, as opposed to the stone of noble homes. Apart from the farmers, there was a small class of artisans. These people would have lived a slightly better life, 
and they would have produced sculpture, paintings and pottery. Alongside them were a few traders. While unable to gain the social capital needed to move up the ranks, they would have been able to amass a certain amount of wealth. This would have enabled them to live a more comfortable life than most. Some may have even been able to use stone to build parts of their housing. You could tell the success of a trader by the ratio of stone to mud in their home. Like the Aztecs, the Maya also had a slave class. The two most common ways of joining it were debt or punishment. Prisoners of war would also often end up as slaves. While life as a slave was definitely hard, it probably wasn't as bad as being a slave in some of the other historic slave societies. This is how Mayan society functioned at its height during the classical period. In the 8th and 9th century, however, things started to change. Mayan society started to collapse, and some of its biggest and most important cities were abandoned. They stopped building large temples, and it seems that their population shrank. The reasons for this are unknown, but there are many competing theories as to why it happened. Some people think it may have been due to changes in climate. There is some evidence that suggests that there may have been a large drought in the area. This would of course have made it difficult to grow enough to feed their large population. Another theory suggests that the Mayans themselves were responsible for the lack of food. Their slash and burn farming techniques eventually wore out the soil. Alternatively, an increase in warfare could have caused the collapse. Perhaps the various city-states put too much effort into fighting each other and not enough into maintaining their societies. Or perhaps they faced invasion from outside. If this was the case, we are unsure as to who the culprits might be, but likely candidates include the Toltecs and Teotihuacan. Other theories suggest things like disease or social unrest may have been responsible. At the moment, we just don't have enough evidence to say what really happened. It could have been any one of these factors, or perhaps a combination of several of them. This wasn't, however, the end of the Maya. While their glory days were definitely over, some people argue that collapse is the wrong word to describe what happened. The Mayan continued to exist. They still do today. If culture is defined by big cities, strong states, and control of large areas, there is no doubt the Mayan culture declined. If, however, you think of culture as a set of practices and identities, then Mayan culture continued, just in a different form. There was a shift to the peripheries of the Mayan world. The regions of Patan and the southern Yucatan had always been where the most powerful cities could be found. These declined, but the cities of the northern Yucatan and the highlands of Guatemala continued. It seems that there may also have been some migration out of the centre into these areas. The Maya did not completely revert back to subsistence agriculture and village life. New cities and kingdoms were founded, although of course these could not rival their earlier cousins. Mayapan, for example, became very powerful in the 12th century, although it too declined before the Spanish arrived. Mayan social structure in this new post-classical period did change, however. It seems that there was a move away from kings towards ruling councils. New cities were also built in increasingly defensive locations. Often they had walls as well. It was around this time the Maya stopped making stele. As the importance of the king declined, 
their propaganda value was nullified. The very last stele that we know of depicted not just the king, but his ruling council. This illustrates the change in social organisation. Although warfare was common during the classical period, I think the post-classical era would have been a dangerous time in which to live. As times got tough and the large states started to disappear, the Mayan world got much less stable and fighting would have increased. This is how the Maya were living when the Spanish arrived. Their great cities were abandoned and overgrown, and the complex structures that made them an organised society had disappeared. That brings the episode to a close. This is also the end of our time dealing with not just the Maya, but Mesoamerica as a whole. I have to admit, I've developed a bit of a soft spot for the Maya. I love their strange traditions, their scholarly nature, and their unique religious ideas. How can you not love a civilization that has a god called the Farta, and which tries to give its children cross eyes and cone heads? I hope you've enjoyed hearing about them as much as I have enjoyed researching them. The Mesoamerican region is so packed full of history, you could easily do a podcast on it alone. Unfortunately, I've only been able to give a cursory introduction to the area. It will, however, continue to play an important role in Latin American history. We will soon be returning to deal with the Spanish conquest. Next, we move south. The following two episodes will deal with Central America, the north coast of South America, and the Caribbean. Until then, thanks for listening.